0: Hello! This episode is a rerun. We'll be back with new interviews at the end of the month. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the show where we share some of the live stream events we host every night with some of the most exciting figures in global culture. I'm Vas Christodoulou. How to Academy's Deputy Director, and one of the curators of our programme. This week, Darren Brown helps Hannah McInnes to take in the wisdom of the Stoic philosophers. His book on that subject is called A Little Happier Notes on Reassurance, and it's out now, wherever good books are sold. Enjoy the interview.
1: The book is called A Little Happier, uh, and it condenses the lessons of your previous book, which is called Happy. I'm quite intrigued as to why you actually use that word in your title, Happy and Happier, because you actually pick apart that word and you say it's the most elusive aspect of the human condition. And that's not essentially what you're hoping people take away, being happy or happier. Yeah,
2: yeah it's, it's, uh, it is it's a really difficult... Part of the problem, I think, is that it's it's a difficult word to define. And part of the reason for that is when we take... Big things like happiness or success or failure or love and we give them this kind of noun status and we kind of reduce them to something that sounds like it's very simple and actually a lot of those things are much more active they're really they're really a sort of verb they're really to do with our actions and happiness is one of those things it's it's in some ways, it's a byproduct of something else. It's a byproduct of finding meaning. It's something that resides in choices that we make and something we actively do every day. So part of the problem is the word itself. And I, I think that image of a, of a rainbow, which is sometimes used for happiness, is a good one because as you as you get closer to a rainbow, it kind of recedes and, and dissipates. And, and I think this concept of happiness, if we take it as something simple and straightforward, it does the same thing. So the approach that I've That I took in Happy and in this which is a condensed version of the same book, some of the writing is taken across and some of it's new, is a very old idea, a 2,000 year old idea which kind of does allow you to approach happiness with a slightly more specific mode which is to say uh, that it's not really a thing in itself but it's the absence of something. So the model they had and it's largely the Stoics who I talk about, so a 2,000 year old very popular school of philosophy. In fact, it was the most popular school of philosophy when Christianity exploded onto the scene, which means the early Christians took a lot of Stoic ideas and sort of used them within their own school of thought, as it were. So it means that some of the Stoic ideas have stayed with us and sort of come up through that ladder, up through Christianity over the last two millennia. So some of them do sound uh, familiar to us. And anyway, their basic idea was to see happiness as the absence of unnecessary disturbance, unnecessary anxiety. So then you start to get into a, a, a different approach because now you're, now you're asking the question, of, well, how do you avoid unnecessary disturbance? How do you avoid unnecessary anxiety? And that's an easier question to answer and an easier thing to, to tackle. And then that idea has been with us in different forms for, for a long time, most recently with Freud, I suppose. He's, he When Freud started this kind of talking therapy and psychoanalysis, His aim wasn't to create happiness or to make you happy. It was to restore what he called uh, a natural unhappiness, which he contrasted with unnatural unhappiness when people are unnaturally unhappy. Because he said, basically, life is unhappy. You know, you've got things you want to do and you can't do them most of the time. So our natural state is going to involve a certain amount of unhappiness. So, yeah, it is a sort of a negative way of getting at it. But I think it allows you... uh, to get a bit more specific as to how you can how you can get there. And it stops being this rainbow-like chimera that just dissipates as you approach it.
1: And you, we, we'll, we'll get into this more. It's very much about how to sort of get to know ourselves better, control our own minds and, and understand what we can and can't control. I'm just wondering, was this idea for you about the importance of sort of looking inwards and, and nurturing our own minds always important to you or did it kind of come after your interest in sort of controlling other people's minds
2: it actually came from i suppose i i'd always been aware i had a complete lack of any ambition i'd never i didn't set out to create the career that i've got my only kind of priorities were to enjoy really what i was doing in the moment really i didn't even think of it particularly in those terms but i knew i didn't have any any strong ambition, and I just wanted things to feel right as they as they were as I kind of went along. And because of that, I as I then sort of things did take off, and I found myself in a world of you know grown ups and producers and so on. I I really felt like a kid in a world of grown ups, and I felt like I was sort of missing something where I was supposed to take things like you know viewing figures for TV shows and so on, right, like, really seriously, and uh, I. I I, I didn't, and I, um, so I just sort of felt something must be sort of missing in me. But the when I started to read the Stoics, it really resonated with that, and it gave what I thought was maybe something a bit childish on my part, and a, a language and a and a, a structure and and actually kind of seemed to be a really sensible and robust approach to life. So that that's really what did it, and that's what led to that first book, um, Happy. And then I think it gave gave me a bit of direction at a time that I needed it. because so I was kind of growing out of the magic stuff for its own sake, I think. And I wanted, as I grew up, to find a more grown up thing to do with it. So although it started off as a, in a way, a, a very different sort of thing that I was into uh, over the last, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years, those two things have come together. So now the performance side that I do and is led into the writing and that's led into this and that the whole the thing has kind of become uh, just a, a, a developed area for me and become, given me opportunities to do something more grown up.
1: And I'm sure, they, yes, I'm sure they both inform each other very much.
2: Yeah, absolutely, yeah.
1: You say many ideas in here are the direct opposition to the tenets of the modern self-help industry and most likely to our intuitions. What do you think the modern self-help industry then gets wrong, or, or what message does it give out that isn't helpful, or even, as you say at one point, a lie?
2: Hmm. Uh, okay, okay. Where do we start? Well, there's 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 a few there's a few things. One is the idea of well, the self. We just take the self bit. They talk about the self like uh, it's one of those nouns, like happiness, and also as I was talking about, it's, they make out that's a a simple sort of isolated thing that we can tackle through a few techniques and the self isn't a self is a great example of something it's actually a verb we self we sort of self out into the world our sense of self is an active thing that extends into our relationships uh, it's a very fluid sort of active complex thing I, I i always used to really notice this with those tv shows that i do so like a show like the push which some people um tuning in will tuning in 150 uh, will know. Um, the other shows I've done too, the amount of people that say to me, oh, if I, if it was me and that, I'd never have done it. I'd never have pushed the guy off the roof. I'd never have done this. I'd never have done it. And I just know it's, well, well, your sense of self, your sense of what you'll do when you're sat watching a show, isolated at home is very different from what your self is when you're in that situation with those people in a completely different context. So if your self changes from context to context, and your capacities and potentials change then um that's one problem and then in a slightly perhaps more straightforward way most of the self-help model is based on the modern self-help american model is based on um optimism a sort of optimistic model which in turn goes back to calvinism it goes back to sort of a protestant work ethic which we sort of inherited and took across to a sort of secular mode but it has that protestant idea of you've got to work you've got to work you've got to work so it lets us down because when things go badly when life doesn't go the way we want it to and our goals don't work out and just bad stuff happens we're left with nothing other than a sort of sense of failure because we must have done something wrong we must have not believed in ourselves enough we must have messed up and there isn't really any respect of the fact that well, there are your goals in life, like on one axis, but there's another axis that's just what they used to call fortune before the Christian mode took over. So therefore, before Protestantism and therefore before this optimistic mode, there's this other stuff. Life is just coming back at you. It's throwing stuff at you that you cannot you cannot control. So actually, if you want a good, robust kind of philosophy to take into life, you need one that will support you in those moments. You need one that supports you when everything goes terribly. It's no good if it just support you when things are going well and that's sort of the problem with that optimistic mode and all the stuff about goal setting i think is a little flawed um Mm. i think short-term goals are great um, and helpful but long-term goals are really problematic and that sort of faith-based model that if you put stuff out into the universe that the universe will provide if you you know do your dream board and believe in yourself and not that the universe will provide. And that is quite explicitly put out in things like, you know, the secret and so on. And it's just not true. You know, the universe doesn't give a fuck about you. There's no, there is no, there's no kind of contract with the universe. It's nonsense. Uh, Much better to accept that the universe doesn't care. And that half the time things are, you know, things, are. there's this other axis, there's this other side of things that you have no control over and to make your peace with that, to move in an easier accordance with what they used to call fortune. That should be the key, not believing that you can crank up this line that we live, which is an X equals Y diagonal, that you can crank it up in line with your own goals uh, because that's going to let you down and then you'll just feel like you failed.
1: But goals give you purpose, don't they? Goals or, or, I mean, what's the difference between a goal and a dream? And lots of us find that we live for our for our dreams they give life more meaning they give you something to you know you you say I suppose strive is a is a bad word but they they can enrich our lives can't they
2: absolutely I think the key is to have high intention but low expectation and I think that's where the goal thing lets us down by all means we should be putting out stuff into the world we should you know having so high intention but in terms of what you actually expect the world to give you back that's that's the problem is when we get too attached to that so there are a few problems with goals. And again, I'm not talking about short term goals, because clearly if you want to learn a language or you want to drive a car or, I don't know, lose some weight, there's all sorts of like, you know, short term examples where goals are going to be very helpful. But to give you an example, of this, the, the problem is that you can spend your life climbing a ladder and then realise you had it against the wrong wall. So the problem we're talking about a long a term. So a good friend of mine, I, I use this example in, in the book, I believe, um, did a thing that a lot of people do. He decided he was going to be a millionaire by age, whatever, and he was going to start a business, um, build that business up and then sell it. And this came from, it went back to his relationship with his father, which uh, seemed to be based on he needed to achieve and show achievements in order to sort of feel that he was loved by his father, which is, you know, a very common thing for workaholics, which he was. So he spent a few decades building up a very, very successful company and sold it for a huge amount of money. And I think literally the day after he did that, he realized he had nothing to do and that actually his sense of meaning in life was never about selling the company and being a millionaire. It was the meaning that he got from that sense of achievement and building this thing up and having this company and all the rest of it. So the moment that was gone, Uh, he became terribly depressed and he um, actually ended up joining a a support group. (laughs) I kind of essentially went to went to therapy and found out there were a lot of a lot of people, a lot of very successful businessmen. And he's not he's not asking for any sympathy here from anyone, but who have got into the same uh, position. So there is that problem of like our understanding of what actually makes us happy and what we think makes us happy across time. You know, we have a very bad grasp of, of that. And often our sense of what gives us meaning is slightly kind of uh, elsewhere. Or oh, there's the problem, as I said, if you don't get it, you don't sell the company, you don't get where you want to. And then what if you just wasted uh, however many years it was? So it's a problem, problem if you get there and a, and a problem if you don't. And a problem in thinking that, you know, as I said, the universe kind of owes you something because you've, because you've put that intention into it. Sometimes it's fine, but it's, there's a thing that you're, you're pinning your happiness on something that is completely out of your control, or at least there are parts of it that are in your control, right? That's your intention. But the important bit, the outcome is not under your control. And unfortunately, that's where you're pinning your well-being.
1: So I think you, you say perhaps life is like music and we shouldn't focus on the ending. We should sort of dance through life. And I mean, you, you, I think you've answered this question. I was thinking other two, you know, mutually exclusive. You can be thinking about the ending and dancing through life. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's a lovely metaphor from um, Alan Watts, who made the point, and it's a good one. That um, you know, we don't. When you read a book or you know watch a film, you don't just skip to the final scene because that's where it all comes together. You, you you know, we don't do that. But we we do tend to, you know, if we if the last scene of a film is terrible, it lets us down. We tend to kind of dismiss the whole thing. It's a, you know, we're we're very caught up in stories and how they work out. And stories can let us down at the end you know which is why if you're doing a job interview you need to say all the bad stuff about yourself at the beginning and not at the end because uh, what happens at the end is is uh, is very important but yes he says maybe life is supposed to be like a piece of music and maybe we're supposed to be dancing which of course ties into this whole idea of living living more uh in the moment and not fixating too much on the future we do we are we do live with a contingent future ahead of us so we can't we can't disregard it it's very hard to live in the moment at all without some sense of hindsight or context within time or find any meaning without including before middle and after because that's how meaning comes right through causation it involves time and involves storytelling so we can't entirely live in the present despite that kind of rhetoric but it's a good point we fixate too much on where we want to be like what is it like when we're choosing our I don't know GCSEs we're doing that probably based on what a levels we might want to do based on what university we think we might want to go to based on what job we think we're probably going to want to do and where that can go like what is this what is this mysterious point that we're supposed to reach when we're 50 or something when it all kind of comes together it doesn't it it never comes together you realize it's just been this this climbing and again that is a it's a religious model the climbing of a ladder is a religious model that's not the only model for moving forward through life and through your job another model is a lily pad right a frog on a lily pad you spend some time on one lily pad you sum yourself there and then when you get bored you hop to another one so that's a horizontal model right it doesn't just have to be this vertical climb to what there's nothing there's nothing there
0: hello it's vas here one of our all-time favorite guests at how-to academy is back Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now.
3: Hey there.
1: One of the bits um, of advice that I've found particularly helpful is to do with our sort of inner narrative and how that departs from the perspective we have when we're advising friends. So when we are advising friends we are very much more rational and we can sort of see things from a point standing away and how can we then try and apply that sort of greater rationality to our own judgments about
2: ourselves? It's so much easier with other people but the, the, the point is It's sort of the nature of storytelling, you know. That life is actually complex and messy. There's an infinite data source coming at us, an infinite number of things that we could pay attention to, but we choose what we're going to pay attention to, and we join up the dots in a particular way so we can make sense and have a a story of what's going on, which allows us to move forward and, you know, sort of basically function. But um, when we hear when when our friends and other people tell us of their conflicts and the things that are making them angry and so on. And they tell us these stories. We're normally very aware of the fact that they're stories and we're very aware that there's clearly another side going on. And we sort of gently, normally, we gently sort of might try and nudge nudge them to a sort of understanding that, oh, maybe maybe it was this and maybe he just meant this and perhaps this other thing might be going. And we sort of try and bring in uh, bring a more charitable interpretation of what might be going on into the into the picture. But we are terrible at doing that for ourselves. But we do need to because I think this is... This is what we do throughout all of life. Right from the word go, we're told to sort of banish parts of us that are wrong, and uh, we kind of shove bits out of the picture that don't fit what we think is right. And as we grow up, those parts of us that then are sort of not honoured can come to own us because they sort of have this sort of unconscious power that can sort of bubble away so even at sort of even at that level as we grow up and uh, particularly as you get into the second half of life I think this becomes more important and, and you know they're there because they're exactly the sort of things that creep into your the same problems that occur in your relationships one after another all the sort of strange addictions we have all the things we always avoid then normally those parts of us that we buried are just kind of just sort of sounding themselves from a distance and, and letting themselves be known bubbling away and, and, and owning us, strangely. So the way around that is to sort of find out what they are and try and include them more in our sense of self and try and honour them in some way. And likewise, all the things we banish from the stories that we tell tend to be the things that create these conflicts. And somehow we just need to sit in a certain amount of ambiguity more and not always go for this sort of certainty. The nature of telling ourselves a story about the world, stories about graceful arcs, Aren't they? They're kind of like when you watch a film, everything sort of kind of makes sense, and, and all the stuff that's too nuanced or conflicting or messy gets excluded. And we 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 sort of try and apply this same model to the world, and of course that isn't that just isn't the reality. And our our, our certainty about something is really only a, a narration of how much ambiguity we're actually willing to uh, to tolerate. And we need to talk. You know, we need to tolerate it more as as we grow up.
1: So so are you saying, in a sense, then that? all the messiness and the complication and the story that doesn't fit the sort of neat narrative is there in our minds and we push it to the back of our minds, but we're sort of trying to live a kind of false way of living that sort of fits to a story that's too neat and and we just need to sort of accept all the messiness and complexity.
2: Yeah, (laughs) essentially. I mean, and I think sometimes that's easier than others and sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's not. So in times of crisis, it's not helpful in terms of crisis language does become very certain and our stories have to be quite like that because otherwise you know you can't really you can't go to war unless you're all rallying under the same cry so nuance kind of has to be lost but some people live out life like it is a crisis. You know, some, some people do. If you're, if you're prone to anxiety, that will sort of be your mode most of the time. And that's not really helpful. So what, what that is at the heart of it is saying it's not so much about owning our stories. We're told this a lot. You know, own own your story. I think it's more about just recognizing that they are just stories. You know, the, the, there's a nice picture of, of um, you know, stories of things told around firelight in, in clearings. And you've got all this forest around you that's just in darkness. This is all the stuff that's excluded while you've got this cosy little firelit centre. And all the monsters are in the darkness. You know, all the stuff that's excluded is out there. And that is the stuff that will come back and get you, whether it's things in yourself that you're not honouring or whether it's things in the world that you're just having to banish so that you can. This is what fundamentalism is, isn't it? It's just somebody not tolerating ambiguity. Fundamentalism plus power becomes, becomes tyranny. And if you're banishing anything that conflicts with your neat sense of how the world must be out into the forest, out into the darkness, you've got to really work to maintain that world. And the only way you can do that is by trying to control everything in it um, to fit in with this slightly pathological story you've got of how how the world is. So the only answer is to sit more comfortably with ambiguity and to see it is just a story and slowly allow those kind of monsters to lose their um, to lose their power.
1: You say, you know, we'll be prone to anxiety and, and sort of it's all the way through the most important premise is this idea of trying to understand and accept what we can control and relinquish you know let go of the things that that we can't control and today I was thinking right I can do that I can do that and then I realized it's very hard to distinguish between the two I was thinking well I can't control that I must let it pass and and it's all okay as you as you say in the book it's you know it's all fine and then I thought actually I probably could you know call someone up and try and change that or manipulate it it's very hard to distinguish between what you can and can't control.
2: Yeah. So again, you can distinguish between intention and outcomes. So the, the big stoic fork is between what you're in control of and what you're not. And what you are in control of are your thoughts and your actions, right? So what you do, what you put out in the world and what you choose to think about, like that, that's hard enough, right? But at least that's in theory, you're kind of in charge of those things. That's your domain, That's where your tasks are as a human being in the world. All the other stuff, what other people do and what they think about and and what happens in the world and what what the outcomes of things are, let alone what your neighbours are up to or how, how well other people do their jobs, all the things that annoy us, those are not under our control. And the mistake we make is to try and control those things. Most of the time, that's what we're trying to do. And of course, if you try and control something that you have no control over, you're just gonna frustrate yourself. And this is exactly the kind of unnecessary disturbance that this model is about, right? So how do you avoid that? You decide that all of those things are fine and you're only going to concern yourself with your thoughts and your actions. Now you're right, that makes sense, uh, but generally in life, because it is nuanced and complex and messy, things aren't that neat. And sometimes you're in a situation where you're like, well, I am partially in control of this. But the same fork applies So if you imagine playing a game of tennis, and if you go into a game of tennis thinking, I must win, right, you are trying to control something that is not under your control. And most likely, if you start to lose, if your opponent's better than you, you'll start to feel anxious because it will feel like you're failing and you are failing, essentially. Um, So you won't play as well. Um, The alternative is to go into that game thinking, I'll play as well as I can and I'll play to the best of my abilities, now that's something you're in control of, right? That's back on the side of your thoughts and your actions. If your opponent turns out to be better than you, you've no reason to feel anxious because you're not failing, you are succeeding still in your in your aim and you'll play better. And tennis players will tell you this, you will play better if you make if you make that your aim. So sometimes it's about that, it's just picking apart what are the bits so like matters of social injustice. So like what if you do actually want to change the world? What if that's Like, that's a really important thing to sometimes... And and the Stoics were big movers and shakers. They were politicians, statesmen, emperors. You know, these were not... It's not just about... It isn't about complacency and about going, oh, that's fine, I'm not going to bother. It can be like that. It depends how you are kind of constitutionally, I guess. But, uh, yeah, so in things with matters like that, it's separating, again, what are you in control of? You're in control of how much effort you put into what you do. So you could spend your life fully emotionally committed to changing something in the sense of doing your best to sort out this social problem as you see it. But you're not going to commit yourself to an outcome because that outcome might happen three generations later. Anyway, it might be nothing to do with you. And if you do pin yourself to that, you're just going to get bitter and anxious and too angry and all of those things that are actually going to get in the way of you doing a good job. So you're just separating what you are in control of from what you're not. And separating outcomes from intention is is one aspect of that. What I find for myself is that thought of like, which side of the line is it? And I think a, a big thing, of just having the sort of security, having the understanding that, oh, it's fine. If it's on this side, if it's on the external side, as in not my thoughts and actions, then it's fine. It is fine as it is. Understanding that, that like nothing bad happens if you do that. Nothing bad happens if you decide those things are fine. And as I said, sometimes you're gonna pick it apart because you can still influence things in that world but only to the extent of what you're in control of. So you're, you're, you're separating those two things, but that thought of how is the question I ask is how is it, how, how could it be fine for this thing to be, to be the case, this thing that's bothering me, how could it just be fine that that's like that? And sometimes the answer is easy. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it just needs to drip in just sort of drip by drip into the, into the soul but that's the key thought. And I for me, it's like waking up as a kid on a Saturday morning and you think you have to go to school, then you remember it's Saturday and you don't have to. That sort of rush of relief of, oh, it's fine. You know, it's fine that this guy's a dick and that he, fine that these people don't like. you fine, whatever. That's fine. That's their own stuff. That, that's fine. It's fine that I didn't get the job, didn't get the promotion, didn't get the thing. That was somebody else's. Or, you know, it's, it's fine. you're you, That's not your job. To have or do those things or it's not your job to have everybody like you or it's not your job to whatever your job is to is to do is is about what you put out in the world uh, yourself
1: so if if success then is not about reaching a goal so to say i've succeeded is not about i won i got there i did it i made it what is success about you talk about in the in, in the book it's about talent and energy for example and i'm wondering if you could explain that a little more
2: yeah okay well look, Ultimately, success is going to be about a relationship between what happens in the world and what your expectations were, right? So if your expect- expectations are just to do as well as you can in something, then you can still feel a success in that, even if the results, you know, even if you don't win the thing, whatever, like like the tennis game. So there's that. That's just a relationship between what you expect. And there's a lot of power in lowering your expectations. But in terms of like what we can do towards success in all its more obvious forms in life, again, it's just what happens if you distinct, if you separate the two? The bits you're in control of are your talent, so developing your talent, and the energy with which you get it out there. Right. So if you've got all the talent in the world but you never show anybody, no one's going to see it, then you're not going to get very far. And if you have got all the self-promotional energy but no, uh, no talent to back it up, then again, it's probably not going to get you very far. So those are the only things that you're in control of. So those are the only things you need to pay attention to. And all the other stuff... Whether you get the phone call, whether you get given the job, whether you get the gig, whether whatever, you have no control over that. So you can just decide that is none of your business, and focus. You're not going to make it any better by trying to control those things. All you're going to do is make yourself anxious at every audition you go to, or every whatever it is. But what you can focus on, and where you put all your energy, is into your thought, your your talent, and your and your energy. And of course, then this also ties in with the whole thing of you get to enjoy the journey. It becomes about the journey rather than just the destination so yeah so that is that's that's sort of the key if there's a magic formula for success it's talent and energy and everything else is is neither here nor there you have no control over it
1: one of the things you say is we are not so special again it's a sort of myth of the self-help industry perhaps that we must imagine you know we, we are unique and we are special and I'm wondering why you think we shouldn't have that idea because in many ways that's what helps us feel a sense of sort of self-worth, the idea that we are, you know, we're worth worth it as the self-help
2: would say. Yeah. I think we get a little bit too hung up on things like self-esteem. I don't know anyone that's got high self-esteem and the people that do seem to have it are normally the ones that don't have it at all because, you know, you only need, <laughs> if you need that back, you only need the stuff that you don't have, right? If you go through life, you know, putting that out, it's enough to just, I think find something worthwhile to do and to do that in, a, in in the best way. So we get a little bit hung up on things like self-esteem and self and self-worth. The of course there are times, and it's a slightly rhetorical point in the book, you know, you're not so special, but it is a useful thought sometimes because the flip side of thinking that we're special is that we miss out on the tremendous power of how much like other people we actually are. So life, I think is centripetal, right? It pulls towards the center. And we have all sorts of distractions and things on the outside, but eventually there will be things that happen that pull us to difficult moments in the middle. Uh, And when when those do happen, we tend to feel, we can feel like we failed, we tend to feel fearful, we feel anxious, and we certainly feel isolated. But those moments when life is doing that, We are feeling the precise weight of life, right? All the distractions have gone. We're feeling what life is really handing us. This is the weight of existence. And it's the one thing we share with everybody because everybody gets to that same point. So we feel most isolated, but actually we are most connected uh, with other people. It's very hard to do that if we're convinced that we're special and, and unique. Whereas if we allow ourselves to also be quite ordinary and that the problems we have are probably things that other people are sharing. So look, take, take the lockdown. This is a very literal uh, example of this. We are literally isolated, but we're all sharing in the, same, in the same thing. So you could take two kind of ways of looking at this in terms of dealing with anxiety. One would be the stoic approach, which is just decide that all the madness in the world is, is fine. You're just going to roll with it. And what you're going to pay attention to is what you do. Whether you you know you're going to wear a mask, you're going to do this, you're going to deal with your own stuff and get on with it, and that can include helping others and all those other things. But you're just paying you're just paying attention to your own project, your own task through all of this, and deciding everything else is sort of none of your business. Meanwhile, the complete opposite of that, if that's about avoiding anxiety, is to sort of say, well, anxiety is is this is part of life, you know, and a certain amount of melancholy maybe is sort of appropriate, given how life can be. So we're going to kind of just going to let that sit and go, that's OK. This is part of our condition. And when you start to lean into that, it's a very different route. But suddenly we're in this thing that we're all sharing and then there's something very human about that that we can then take into the rest of life with all our problems and all our stuff and realize that it's you know we're all we're all going through it irrespective of what people look like and the curated versions of themselves that they put out on Instagram and to our faces when we meet that actually we're all largely going through the same stuff underneath
1: I was going to ask you whether you thought that of course sort of social media and striving to live up to kind of ideals that everybody puts out there you know is a a sort of new thing and how much of you know, of a problem that causes. But I, I would say I do think that there's a move at the moment towards uh, sort of a, a sharing of, of more vulnerability. So there's definitely a kind of yes. move on social media and things like that, which perhaps you you must think is a, is a, is a good thing when, uh, you know, whether it's celebrities or, or normal people writing about it, about sort of things that have gone wrong and how they've failed or how they're vulnerable is becoming much more of a, of a thing.
2: Yeah, well, there's 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 this basic problem which is you know when people when we meet people that alone on social media they present the best versions of themselves normally so we're seeing a kind of a veneer where things look great and we tend to compare that with our inner workings which are messy and complex and embarrassing and um all sorts of you know stuff it's like a big lumbering giant we have following us around that's our you know that's our private life and we make the mistake of comparing people's external appearance or their at least what they put out in the world that veneer to all of that stuff, and Yeah. Social media just makes that even worse. And if that's all you've known, if that's, you know, if you're of an age, that's what you're sort of growing up with. And that's all, you know, uh, I don't know how you begin to uh, to navigate that. So, yeah, that is it's yeah part of the problem is the technology is amazing, but it doesn't quite tie in with our values. It doesn't quite It needs shifting needs a sort of ethical input. There are people like Tristan Harris, um, there's a great documentary called The Social Dilemma on Netflix, which I'm sure a lot of people will have, will have seen, uh, who's a, a real kind of pioneer in trying to bring technology just to give it a kind of ethical nudge, bring it more in line with, with, with human values. And that's, that's missing. And yeah, social media is the, the worst for it. It's also great in lots of ways, right? But it's, that, it, that's, yeah, that is a, a real problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, in, in, in a way, as, as I said, it, it brings us together in our sort of vulnerability, as you were saying, like rather than being, you know, on our own thinking we're special and unique, it has a way mm-hmm. of kind of making us realise other people are going through the same sorts of things. You talk about embracing the, the possibility of, of loss and, and always in order to appreciate something we have, whether it's a relationship, mainly in relationships, you refer to it, we should always be sort of at the edge of our mind thinking that we stand to lose that thing. And I, I wonder if that isn't more anxiety-inducing. If you're always worrying about losing something, are you, not, are you not missing the joy?
2: Oh, of course, and I'm not suggesting people should always worry about, about losing things at all. I didn't mean it quite like that, but the, um, it's just about not taking things for granted. So the Stoics, again, the 2000-year-old idea, they would say, you know, go without hot baths so that you don't take, you don't take nice baths for granted when they, when they do come along. Um, so it's just extending that. They even said, you know, when you kiss your child goodnight, you should remind yourself that she may die during the night. I've, I've got a dog, I'm, I'm, I've got a couple of dogs, but I've got, think my favorite dog here. Um, you know, she's already halfway through her life and I'm really trying to kind of make sure I do enjoy, and I'm very present with her because, you know, it won't be that long before before she goes. So yeah, it can all sound a bit morbid, but the um, the point is just, and the, the value of it, is that a lot of these things that when we feel we just own things we start to take them for granted and when we take them for granted we don't we don't desire right we don't desire things that we that we have you know part of the way of spicing up long term relationships because you you love the person that you're with but you desire things that you don't have right so it, that's why you know sexy times often get fewer and fewer with people that you're in long term relationships with because you 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 love them and you have them and it's hard to balance that with desire which is a strange thing so part of the answer to that And the the reason why people can be oddly, you know, our partners can be oddly sexy if we see them perform or see them do really well in a business meeting and other people really admiring them or whatever. Whatever. We start to see them through other people's eyes and finding ways of reinstating their kind of otherness. So we stop just taking them for granted, like we just own them and they're just going to be there all the time, um, I think is I think is important. It's just about not taking things uh, for granted. Yes, of course, it's not about. Just adding, uh, adding worry. It's just a thought to lean into sometimes.
1: Yeah, there's, and there's a whole nother discussion in that. The idea of I mean, I, I'm of the hot bath theory, but actually, people tell me just enjoy things more. Don't always feel you have to deserve everything by having you know cold baths in order to appreciate the hot. But there's another discussion in that, and there are so many questions here. My goodness. And, and just just out of interest, it's a, it's a good question because you list your sources in the back and they, someone says that you know we have a lot to learn perhaps from the Stoics and, then w- and wonders if you have a recommendation of, of more where you can go in f- further in search of that philosophy.
2: Yeah, well, I, um, at the back of the Happy Book, there were loads and loads of book recommendations. I kept everything out of the uh, smaller one just to, to keep it smaller. Um, I'd say a really good starting point is a book by William Irvine, I-R-V-I-N-E, Called A Guide to the Good Life and then the Ancient Art of Stoic Joy, or something like that. That's a really nice uh, introduction by a very nice uh, man uh, to, to Stoicism. Um, it's actually a very accessible, is it basically is, is a lot of it's in letters that were written, uh, a lot of it is in uh, teachings that were sort of noted down. It's a very, strangely, that whole world of Greek and, and into Roman philosophy is is an oddly, unexpectedly accessible uh, area and an easy area to read and explore. So yeah, I'd, I'd start with that, A Guide to the Good Life, I think it's called.
1: I think this is a very good question from Lee, who says, um, thanks for doing this. And how do you deal with feeling like your time is running out, which I'm sure a lot of people you know, of many ages feel that you've missed opportunities in the past, the woulda, shoulda, coulda mindset?
2: God, that's depressing. Um, <laughs> uh, as I approach 50, now, I, I think the key is the key is there is a... Sh- so there's a shift that should happen as you go into that sort of middle passage of, of life. And if you don't honour it, that's where this whole midlife crisis thing comes from. So if the first half of life is slaying the dragon, the second half is about rescuing the princess, right, which would normally follow. So that's why these stories have some sort of psychological resonance. So the first half is about... Yeah, slaying your dragons. You're going out in the world, you're you're staking your claim, you are kind of saying, this is me, and you're finding out who you are. And, and the relationship, the key relationship there is between your ego and the world. And then something happens for the second half of life, where you're rescuing the princess, you're, you're serving something, maybe that's bigger than you, you're finding your task, you're kind of, um, you're shifting your priority. And if there's a the, the change now is it becomes more between the ego and, and the self, which is a, a little bit more about finding out who who were you supposed to be before all this stuff in the world kind of um, got in the way and, mess, and messed up the project. What actually was the kind of authentic thing you were supposed to be doing with your life? And normally that's about serving something bigger. So we find meaning in life by finding something bigger than ourselves and throwing ourselves into that thing, right? Whatever that is. So all this may sound nonsense if you're in your 20s but as you as you get into the second half of life these kind of things do become more important if you're still kind of ambitious and trying to kind of claim your you know stake your claim in the world in in your in your 60s then you've 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 slightly missed missed things I think I think so that that's that's the answer is you allow you allow priorities to shift that's so I'm I feel like I'm very much sort of on the on the Cusp of all that at the moment. I've tried to do it with my own sort of work and my own interests. You just you just lean into other things and find a, a different sort of uh, a different sort of meaning.
1: Somebody asks: Is is the central takeaway from the book everything you cannot control is satisfactory?
2: Well, it's not. Always, it's not like it's everything you can't control is sort of ideal. Uh, and the the Stoics. I, mean, I don't really quite consider myself a Stoic. I should say, but I don't think any one philosophy holds the answer to anything. But they would just sort of they would suggest a kind of indifference like a sort of non-attachment bear in mind the first stoics were from the east so it's a sort of um it takes a lot of uh, buddhist ideas as well so it's a form of non-attachment to these things that are out of your control so it's not it's not so much about they're great but they're yeah maybe satisfactory is a good word um but you're sort of fostering a kind of indifference to those things that are out of your control this is all about bringing your center of gravity inside that's that's sort of the aim here. You're bringing it back in here and not, not putting your center of gravity out in things that you don't have control over, like what other people think of you, right? In terms of, you know, fame and reputation and, and so on. You're bringing it inside. So it's about having a more robust sense of self. So it's not, hasn't got a lot to say about the value of kindness and the value of, you know, this sense of how much we share with with others and these things that join us up and so on, as I was talking about. So there are sort of, edges to it and i think there are other other thoughts that are valuable alongside it but it's a really good model for just developing a kind of a more robust starting point to take out into the world
1: it's uh, incredibly hard isn't it to not care what people think of you it's a, a great idea but
2: um, that, it's, yeah it's incredibly hard if you decide that has to be the sort of you have to do that perfectly but it's not incredibly hard to have it as a thing to lean into, and I think that's what all this is about. The Stoics sort of had their sage. So it's like a semi-fictional idea of the sage, the kind of the wise Stoic that would do all this stuff perfectly. But you and you're just kind of where you can, learning from that, leaning into it, and kind of adopting it uh, where you can. And I think you just you just start in really small ways. You start in small ways. How does how is it fine if that person thinks that? Oh, of course it's fine. People can think what they like. I could think of, you know shark coming into this room now and swimming around and eating up my book and think what I like you know people can think what they like it's just stuff in their head so you can start with just small stuff and um it maybe it works for you maybe it doesn't but uh but it can grow and become more part of you as you kind of reap the benefits which is just as I said this sort of sense of gravity in in, in there so yeah it it's hard if you just take it as one huge big thing and also you wouldn't want to be like that all the time you don't really want to go through life not caring what people think anyway I don't think I'm like that I like people to like me so I know I'm not I'm not like that but I do know that it's really helpful um in times when we're faced with it and we need a way of you know dealing with a dealing with a problem then it's certainly a it's a really helpful approach.
1: Ian's question was one that was on my list you 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 sort of covered it but I think he makes a good A point which is about, uh, I agree, he says, with your ideas about Stoicism and that we should focus on what we can control. But, and I was thinking all the way through the book, particularly of climate change. Where does that leave us when it comes to problems like climate change, things we need to act together to change? It's the one that really comes to mind when you think of things that are out of your control that we can't just let go.
2: Yes, exactly. Well, the Stoic answer there would be, again, just separating outcome from intention. And what that can do is it it's, uh, can just take out. I mean, th- th- there's always a place for anger in any kind of movement, but it doesn't always. You need to, at some point, transition from anger into sort of practical, you know, uh, uh, measures, and you need to get away from just just being angry because that tends to get in the way. So that's what tends to happen if you if you separate the outcome from your in, from your intention. So as with any kind of, you know, movements, I think that's, that's going to be important. You're focusing on what you can do to actually make something change. Um, so the stoic, the stoic thing, I think still holds up there. I think more of the problem and a more helpful thing is mean, there's, there's a, there's, there's a few issues why I think it, it's doesn't stick for some people, you know, it, things move so slowly. Um, the problem builds so slowly that we don't quite see it, it like, uh, and we can feel nagged, which is another thing that turns some people off. But the the it's like the happiness thing. The word the environment is so easily becomes something separate from us. It becomes like this sort of noun that's out there. And the moment you see the environment as something that's sort of out there and separate from you, we can disconnect from it. And of course, it isn't the environment, it's the air that I'm breathing as I'm talking it's it's like it is very much here and if you start to see the environment as something that is active and again a kind of a verb like I was saying at the beginning and you focus on the activity of it then suddenly you realize the importance of you know you start to see the the insects and their activity and the the soil's silent toil and the the movement and its relevance to us and we you know we there was a point when we had a much more embodied relationship with the environment and over the last couple of thousand years that's moved we've separated ourselves because our ideas of truth have become sort of somehow bodiless they become quite sort of arid and cerebral and that all that has cut us off from an embodied relationship with our environment there's a great book called the uh, spell of the sensuous by david abram which is a really great deep dive into into all of that so again you've got that problem of the it's it's not this kind of now when we package things up neatly as nouns we kind of Move them to arm's length, um, and we need to unpack those nouns again and think of them more as living, active verbs that actually affect us and are complex and, and we're involved in, we're involved in a dialogue with, and all that gets, uh, all that does get, get missed. So I think that's, yeah, again, that's something just to, to lean into.
0: Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre defying, unclassifiable modern classics. Maggie Nelson is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook and audio.
1: Ben says he'd love to hear what you think about workplace wants, uh, i.e. promotions and raises. How do you frame control? over the situation when other people are involved, such as managers?
2: Again, it's just you separate. It's a a tricky thing to pull apart, but the idea is reassuringly simple. You separate what you're actually in control of, what you're putting out, from the results. There's a really good... uh, If you go onto YouTube, there's a great talk in which Brian Cranston, as in from (laughs) Breaking Bad, good name of the show. Brian Cranston talks about it in terms of auditions and saying that... And it's a stoic principle i don't know if he thinks of it as that but he realized that his job in an audition is not to get the job his job is to go in and present the character in a compelling way and so on and and do the best thing he can but to actually get the work to get given the job is not his job and bear in mind this is like a big source of classic anxiety for for, for actors dealing with auditions and the constant rejection if someone else gets the job now he just thinks well that was that was theirs it's like he said it's like finding a wallet on the floor and it's oh it's yours it's like there's no sense of ownership there's no sense of like ah that was supposed to be mine it's just oh that was yours he says he, and this isn't just something he can yeah the luxury of doing because he's successful this idea came before and he says he's never worked as much since changing to that philosophy that the stuff that's not out of his control whether you get the job is not your problem that's not your task your task is just to do your bit in a compelling way so your talent and your energy what you're putting out there it really does hold up and look it's Sometimes these things are, are difficult. It's, it's really hard to pick those things apart, but what's, it, it is worth knowing that that idea holds up. It always holds up. Sometimes you've just got to pick apart what am I in control of and what am I not? But you can emotionally aim to separate yourself from the stuff that isn't. You cannot control what other people do, but you can control what you uh, put out there. And that's always the key. And if you don't, you get caught, I mean, when you get caught up in trying to change other people and so on, then you get into all sorts of problems and you create anxiety and you create bitterness and jealousy and, and all sorts of uh, stuff like that. They're just not, they're not going to help you. They're only going to make things worse.
1: Thomas then says, but what if what is making you unhappy is the unhappiness of someone you feel responsible for, such as your child? How do you come to think I can't control that? It's fine.
2: Yeah. Well, that's a really good example. I think of where the stoic thing slightly kind of hits a bit of an edge. It, I don't think it's, the best model for that. I think uh, nurturing and particularly with, with children, I, th- I don't really think that stoicism holds up. It would be a very strange approach there. So I think there are a, a very, very few exceptions. And I think that's, that's one of them. And it's well, well spotted. Uh, but it's also because your sense of self there is shifting. Your sense of self is shifting because it's active, right? To include this other being, uh, especially if it's a being that you brought into the world. So in a sense... It's not so much contradicting the Stoicism thing. It's just it's still based on the idea that you're you're moving your center of gravity in to protect your your sense of self and make it robust. You're now just including this other being in that in that sense of self. So I think that's I think that's what's going on there. So I think in a weird way it still kind of holds up. But yeah, I think it probably isn't the best language to use in that in that sort of situation for that reason.
1: Um, another another really interesting question is how do we balance following what we enjoy. And they say jumping from lily pad to lily pad, as you said, with meeting societal expectations. So if you want your work to pay to your strengths, but the business or your boss expects something else and tries to push you down a route. And there are obviously, of course, so many ways in which that applies that what makes you, know, you happy and is not necessarily what society expects of you. And that's a, a great sort of pull for some people. A sort of...
2: Yeah, of course. Well, I think, um, look, there are two things. First of all, the big thing is... That's what the whole point of this is. The whole point is to go, this is a kind of a, a, a pull and push in these, in these uh, two different directions. And if you go back to that idea of the graph, here are your aims, here are the things you want to be doing. Here's all the stuff that life is throwing back at you or demands that are being made on you. And we live in X equals Y diagonal. Right. So it's sort of a meandering line maybe across that diagonal. So sometimes we're on top. Things are as we want them. And sometimes life is in control. So, the big thing is to make peace with that line to understand well that is what life is It doesn't mean I'm failing sometimes because things aren't going the way the way that I want so making peace with that as opposed to buying into this model that everything should be going the way you want it to that's a big thing. The whole point of picking the things apart and going what will I actually what do I actually want to kind of emotionally commit myself to well that's 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 what you're doing here are these various things pulling in a way pulling one direction to the other so you're gonna Try and give yourself a bit of a bit of clarity by separating. And when you do make that separation, but those things are still pressing, like that—that's—that's that's kind of okay. But you—you're you, just—it's just where you're sort of putting your heart, where you're put it, where you're putting your um, emotional commitment. You're just attaching it from the things that are not under your control. You can also pretend to be more bothered by those things than, than you are. I mean, I, I, this is important in relationships. I think I like I've I do kind of like have quite a stoic approach to things that would otherwise cause anxiety. I tend to sort of not really get anxious about stuff. My partner does, but I've noted that if I sort of move into a kind of reassurance mode and, you know, sort of tell him that, oh, it's fine because of X, Y, Z, it doesn't have to bother you. It just makes him more angry, right? Because it's actually not, it's not always quite, uh, sometimes you need to be, you need to play the game a little more because the rest of the world isn't quite operating like that. So that's also, I think, of, of value. It's okay. It's not like we don't have to engage with those demands that are being made, but we don't have to um, emotionally embroil us, embroil ourselves in them in the way that we would otherwise. So it's just finding a little bit of clarity, and sometimes it's clearer than others. And when we find those points, when we can go, "Oh yes, I see. I get it. That really makes sense." And now I do actually feel differently about that. I can I, uh, that once we once we get that, once you start to sort of get that into your system a bit, it becomes easier to apply in other areas that are a bit more murky but it does uh, it does work
1: and a really good question and we might have to end with this there are so many and and mm. it, uh, but i think we've answered you know broad themes of many of them but somebody says and i think it's i'm sure applies to very many people which is that uh, i'm going through a period in my life where i seem to be suffering with health anxiety i expect many are with the COVID situation and whether you could elaborate or explain how this, you know, one can deal
2: with with and cope with
1: with health anxiety.
2: I may not be the right person to do that. That sounds like, that sounds...
1: that really feels like a lot of what you're talking about. It's the the absolute epitome of sort of um, things you can't control, worrying very much about what you can't control.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, it is, it is, it is, and I think even if you, even if you, um, you know, there are plenty of people, particularly at the start of lockdown, that were saying, you know, felt like they're having a great lockdown and they really welcomed it and it's, you know, no problem at all. But even then, even for those people, I kind of include myself in this, that, anxiety finds ways of of getting in even if you're kind of okay your partner may not be and and uh, that then feeds into this sort of relationship and can create problems and anxieties in a kind of secondary way so it's it's there for all of us in one form or another whether it's directly related to health or, or not I still think that those two broad thoughts do hold one is finding ways of separating your own tasks from what's going on in the world and kind of getting on with your own stuff and keeping your um, commitment, your emotional commitment there and deciding that everything on the outside, you're just going to kind of roll with it. That has to minimize um, anxiety. And the other thought, which is sort of the opposite thought, if it works more for you is this feeling that it's, it's all stuff that is being shared at the moment, that it isn't an isolated experience. There's a difference between a kind of sense of, uh, sadness for example and melancholy right sadness when things go badly and we tend to turn it in and feel that we've failed and we get into as anxiety is a kind of self-perpetuating cycle there's a difference between that if you think of a sadness versus melancholy which is kind of going the world and life There's something in the structure of life that is tragic uh, at some level you know the Greeks knew this and you know we've, we've had it with us a long time it's you can't deny that And you can lean into that. And then that becomes something that we all share. And there's a sort of a note of melancholy that's perfectly appropriate to feel in life. And if we try to banish that because we think we're supposed to be happy all the time and the optimistic model and so on, then um, it's just going to that's going to create problems for us because it just isn't it just isn't realistic. So leaning into that shared experience, I think, is is also very, uh, very helpful. For me those those are the two big most helpful thoughts in a world that's kind of going mad it's it's finding robustness here and then it's going well you can't do that this is a, this is at least a shared thing and there's something really I think beautiful about that I, I I've really felt it like as, as the lockdown has sort of lifted and sort of people have started to connect again uh, there's a real sense of uh, an unusually human thing of reconnecting with people that have been through the same thing or have lost people too or have been through this extraordinary kind of uh strange adventure that's 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 a really wonderful thing we don't very often get that played out quite as literally as 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 we are now so i don't know beyond that the details of an individual's anxiety is is really hard to really hard to say but i hope you uh, hope you find something in either or both of those of those thoughts but it is a perfectly understandable and rational and logical uh, response to what's happening and you, you know you certainly don't need to make it worse by feeling that you're um, you must be going mad it, it isn't it's a very very logical response
1: hmm, i think lots of people feel very similar do you have time for one more question Darren? of
2: course yeah yeah, as long as you like yeah
1: and um, so somebody asked whether and it's it important i think is whether your your thoughts on how this all extends to dealing with addiction they say to food for example you talk about smoking in the book
2: I think okay. Well, in terms of well, smoking is actually quite a quite a good one. I don't know. If this is a particularly stoic thing. Maybe it is. Maybe. Uh, but yeah, I'm trying to pin it back to the Stoics. It's, it's hard. But uh, again, look. If we aim if we aim for perfection, that's where these things go wrong. So classically, you know, you give up smoking. Works great for a few months, and then you have a really stressful time, or you go on holiday, or something happens, and you have one, and you think it oh, it's fine. I'll just have one. And then you start to feel like you failed because you had one. And then gradually, you know, it comes back. It's a very common story. Find a few months, you then you have one and then it all goes to pop because you failed. But perfection should never be the point. It should just be about tenacity. So actually, just keeping going, right? Keeping going with the project. So if you have one after three months because you've had a bad day, that's great because you were having 15 a day before. Now you've had one in three months and maybe in three months time, you'll have another one. Maybe in six months time, you'll have you'll have another. Maybe in another year, you'll have another one like that's that's a story of continuing success. And the difference there is just the narrative, isn't it, between, wow, I've had one in three months I'm doing amazingly versus, oh, I've failed. So now I'm just going to go back to smoking. Um, The key is always to see yourself as a non-smoker, as opposed to just to try not to do something. If you're trying not to do something, all you're doing is putting that thought there And then trying to see past it and it's it just doesn't work or at least it's a very hard way of doing it the people that just stop like that the people that just give up these things are the ones that have a very clear image for themselves of what they want to be and then they just sort of step into that so it's worth it's worth doing that to take a moment to build up a self an image of yourself a self-image is literally just a picture we carry around with ourselves of who we are right that we go to most of our pictures are terrible because we've never taken a moment to sort of consciously put them together. So they're just a pile of every insecurity we can imagine. Whereas if you, you can take a moment to actually build a good one, particularly if you you know, if it's a specific thing, like wanting to stop smoking. So just think about it, like sit down and, and close your eyes for a bit and just picture what that would be, what it would look like and feel like. And then you make the picture really bright and vivid and colourful and all the things that we do when we picture things that we're excited by. And step into it. like and think what it would sort of feel like to be in that, and just have something that's very clear and, and, and tangible, and is easy to step into, and know what you want want to be, and want to be like. And then it won't matter if you you know if you do have one after three months, because that you can still continue to be to be that. Um, it's just a different uh, kind of story and a different approach. And I think that works. I don't think it's a particularly uh, stoic thing or ties in with much of what we're talking about today. But it is it, it's it's how people give up when they can do it quickly.
1: I reluctantly am going to have to sort of draw it to a close, but hopefully you'll you'll come back. We'd we'll maybe do uh, a similar event with you soon. I know there are so many questions we could go on all evening. But
2: I'd love thank to. Thank
1: you so very much for joining us, and thank you to all of you for for tuning in in your hundreds. It's wonderful that you have. Thank you very very much.
2: Yeah, thank you all of you that stuck around. There's still 516 of you, <laughs> which is amazing. Thank you for uh, sticking around.
0: Lots of love. This week's show starred Darren Brown and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by myself and edited by John Daugherty. You'll find more psychology and philosophy on our website, on our YouTube channel, and, of course, in your favourite podcasting app. Stay in touch with us by subscribing to any of our social channels and by signing up to our newsletter at howtoacademy.com. Thanks for listening.
3: Over the last century, many parts of the world have seen the breadth of female autonomy in both the home and the workplace transformed. But women still face many obstacles, lingering stigmas, pay gaps, and power dynamics inhibiting true equality. The collapse of normality during the pandemic, however challenging, presents an opportunity to make things better for future generations. Listen to broadcaster and former assistant editor of The Times, Marianne Seacard. Sieghardt, Dr. Pippa Malmgren, author and entrepreneur, former White House economist, and a World Economic Forum fellow. And Piktet's Elif Aktuk discuss women in times of change in the latest episode of Founding Conversation, a podcast produced by the Academy in association with the Piktet Group. Each month, we bring together some of the world's most exciting thinkers and business leaders to share ideas for understanding and improving the modern world. You can find us on Apple, Spotify,